Hi, it's Baz. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Life Pedagogic from CFEY's Youth and Education podcast. In this series of podcast episodes, we're interviewing high-profile guests about their life and work within the youth and education sectors. These exploratory open discussions will invite you into the speaker's world and encourage challenging thinking. We hope you enjoy listening. Academisation has been a controversial topic in the education sector for many years. Heartening stories of meaningful, long-term school improvement have been tempered by challenges and failures, and the landscape remains a patchwork. Many schools now belong to trusts, but some continue to stand alone and others have formed partnerships in their own ways. While the government wants to see every school in England in a multi-academy trust or in the process of joining one, the future remains uncertain. One person who is familiar with this picture is Sir David Carter, a prominent figure in education for many years, he started out studying at a comprehensive school in Cardiff and was the first member of his family to go to university. Sir David began work as a music teacher and went on to hold influential roles from head to Matt CEO and eventually regional and then national schools commissioner. He has worked with ministers and Matt and school leaders across the country to build capacity and develop and share approaches to school improvement with the goal of improving the experiences of children and young people at the heart of his work. He joins us to talk about his experiences. So David Carter, welcome to your Life Pedagogic. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be here. Really excited to have you. We're going to start off with a little bit of a, a topical discussion. Obviously, as you know, at the end of last year, it was announced that the government school bill would not mm. be progressing any further. It had included suggestions for academy reforms, such as new academy trust standards to replace current funding agreements, powers for the DfE to intervene at trust level rather than at school level where problems have been identified, protections for faith schools that convert to academies, and powers for councils to apply for academy orders for their schools. Would you like to see any of these or any of the other proposed changes from the bill taken forward in the future? And are there any other changes to the academy trust landscape that you would like to see? So I think that's a really interesting starting point for our conversation because I think I think you're right. I think it is topical, and certainly back in the autumn, uh, or maybe even before that, when the white paper was was live and, and people were talking about it, I, I always try to look at these sorts of themes through the lens of how would I have felt about that when I was National Schools Commissioner? Would that have helped me, or would it have been uh, a hindrance or a distraction? And I think in the main, those were really sensible things. And I think Baroness Barron, who's taken on that academy brief. Uh, after Theodore Agnew and John Nash before that, I think she's brought a real pragmatism to, to to that role. And I think she knows that there are some things that need tightening. And I think that they're, they're not necessarily because things aren't working. I just think it's a natural evolution of a system that's maturing. And so um, of, of the, the ideas that you that you talked about, I think the Academy Trust Standards, absolutely, I think that's important. I've always tried to hold the line about saying, I don't think we need a singular blueprint for what a multi-academy trust should do. But where we believe that there's an opportunity for trust to be creative and to have a very specific identity, that's not a get out of jail card free for not performing well with your schools. So I think the idea of having trust standards around school improvement and school performance, around the quality of governance, how you manage your resources, I think that's a really good thing to look at. And the status of that alongside current funding agreements would have been an interesting debate, I guess, because the the funding agreements actually are very helpful, I think, for DFE because it's a contract that has been signed by the trust with a Secretary of State. So it creates that really hard line of accountability from the DFE to the Academy Trust. And when everything is going really well and everything is flourishing and the schools are doing well, it's not an issue. But you do need occasions where you need to be able to move quickly uh, if a trust is failing children because they only get one go at it. And uh, as I always used to say, the, the deal with the Military Academy Trust when you signed the funding agreement was you were going to make things better, not worse. So if that's not true, then then the DfE absolutely should have the responsibility of stepping in and, and having that conversation, I think, in, in that way around. So I, I think there were elements of that that would be interesting. I think the power for councils to apply for an academy order for their schools is wrapped up in a number of different ways. But I think the headline around that that was creating a lot of interesting dialogue was councils being able to create their own multi-academy trusts, which I remember us talking about back in 2017, 2018. And then I think that one of the many general elections got in the way and, and, it, and it got paused. But there is something in that because I think uh, my, my view has always been that, that in the same way as there are great multi-academy trusts and some not so great, it's the same as apply, apply to, to local authorities as well. 
And I think the sad reality for many is they've had to cut back so much upon their school improvement function that actually local authorities, even if they in the past have been really strong, simply no longer have the capacity to, to do that school improvement. But it's a really good answer to the question, what happens if you're in a part of the country where there aren't enough multi-academy multi trusts and the ones you have aren't particularly good, but you need to do something and move quickly? And So I think it was a really interesting opening gambit, if you like, to talk about how would that work. And I think, you know, people were were anxious about, you know, would that mean that local authorities would suddenly have like 50 schools in one go? And, and of course, the answer to that is no, they would be treated, I would assume, exactly the same as any other multi-academy trust. And they'd have had to demonstrate a strong governance model and that they had a good leadership in place and that they had a school improvement strategy. So so I, I think that was interesting. And I think some of those things actually, now it's not formalised through a bill, may have their time because there will be an opportunity for people to have that dialogue in a, in a slightly less urgent and chaotic way to try and see which bits of that should be salvaged for the best. Yes, that's going to be really interesting, isn't it? And I know that the minister has sort of said there's parts of this we want to take forward regardless. Really helpful to hear your views on the sort of the local side of things as well. And that's been a really big theme for us at CFUI. And we'll come back to that a little bit later in sure. our discussion. Thank you. I'm going to take us back in time now, as we always do on this podcast, to think about your own days at school in South Wales. What stands out in your memory from this time? My school days were really happy. I went to a lovely primary school in the centre of Cardiff, um, went to a secondary school just outside the city. I, I just remember it being a really good time. And, and I guess like many people, you know, when we think back to our school experience, I, I don't think about particular lessons or necessarily particular subjects. I think about playing music I think about being in school productions I think about playing for sports teams I think about the friends I made um you know people who I was in school with who I I still have some contact with today which is I mean I'm 60 63 so it's a hell of a long time ago that's lovely it's really good I mean I suppose the the, the main thing for me was probably that so I, I think if we look back on the on the early 70s which is when I went to secondary school and the late 60s in primary school you know many of the things that we take for granted about how schools work today and that we sometimes you know, feel grumpy about, actually weren't in place at that time. So, you know, there's, I don't think anybody really had an idea whether the schools I went to were any good or not. I don't think anybody particularly analysed exam results. Um, I, I, you know, I started teaching in 1983 and all of the things we do around how, in set days, for example, we didn't have those in 1983. You know, my pay packet, which I've kept just just for as a, as a keep save, my first pay packet I earned, I took home £482. Um, in in September 1983, so it's, it was a different world. Yeah. But I do remember some amazing teachers who really inspired me through sport. My, my family weren't particularly sporty, although I, I came from a, a musical background, so I had music at home. But you know, a music teacher in school, PE teachers in school. Um, I remember I remember my form tutor who I had from year seven or form one, as it was called, right the way through to form five. I remember that, and so they were just really happy times. And I, and whilst I don't think I, I was never one of those young people that's all right, I'm going to be a teacher from the age of twelve or thirteen. That was never really in my thinking. I've no doubt that because my own experience of schools was was positive that influenced my decision when I did make the choice about becoming a teacher? I think it does, doesn't it? Yeah, I can certainly think back to some teachers who I look back at and I think made a huge difference to me. And, and then, same as you, kind of when I came around to thinking of going into the profession myself, thought if I could be someone like that, that would be a real achievement. And it's interesting, Alex, because that was exactly how my mind was thinking when I thought about becoming a head teacher. I'd never, again, I wasn't on a quest to do that. It, it wasn't something I, I ever thought about, but I worked for one particular head who I just thought, wow, if, if I could be a head like that, and if that's what the job is, then I think I could do it. If it's a job where you are a bit remote from the children or you are quite office-based or you're into your finance systems and all of that, as, as important as all of that is, then I don't think that's a job for me. But, but you know, I, the, the, this particular guy was just, the school was like his his living room. You know, he was everywhere. You know, he, he knew the kids, probably all their names. He knew, he certainly knew all the staff really, really well. And, you know, he'd come and watch your lesson and, and you and you just felt honoured. It wasn't a threat. He wasn't observing you to give you a mark. I just, I just wanted him to see what we were doing. So I remember thinking, okay, if I can do it like that, then I think this is something I could do. So I do think it's about being influenced by, by people that you work with who, who just make you think in a different way about what you might be able to do. Yeah, being able to create a culture like that is pretty impressive, isn't it? Mm. It's fantastic. Uh, you've mentioned music there. And I know that that's obviously a really special subject for you. 
you came from quite a musical family and and that was then the kind of subject that you picked up for teaching what was it like to learn music at school for you well it was great I mean you know that was I mean I said to many people the two things I was any good at in school were music and PE and I went on to be a music and PE teacher you know I couldn't believe someone was going to pay me to do that so you know it, it, it was great and uh, I wasn't an all-rounder. I wasn't terribly academic, you know. I mean, to Minister Gibbs' chagrin, I certainly didn't get the E back. <laughs> but I did enjoy music a lot. My dad was a musician. He was the he was the influence. He was a pianist. He played both classical and jazz. He played several sort of rock and pop bands around Cardiff. He was well known in the kind of the nightclub scene for that kind of work that he did. So, oh wow, it was you know that was really powerful influence on me. And there are photographs of me, you know, even before I was walking, sitting on a piano stool, bashing a piano keys. So. <laughs> That was a formative, a formative experience, and and my dad, yeah, I mean he he was my piano teacher basically all the way through. You know that, that I mean I had other piano teachers from time to time, but uh, whether it was I was starting out and then I took a year off between school and university at a time when it wasn't really the thing to do. But I, I'd got a place at Royal Holloway College in, in University of London, which was you know it was great. I mean I, I hadn't expected to get a place, and I hadn't expected my level grades to be good enough, but they were. But I realised from my interview that although they gave me a place, I was I really had to up my game. Mm. And I, I'd seen and heard some of the other people on interview playing piano and thinking, wow, they're in a different league to me, so I need to do something about this. So so I took a year out and just really worked five, six hours a day on the piano. And my dad, when he wasn't working, was, was helping me with that. So that, that was interesting. But I mean, I, I think my, you know my interest in terms of classroom music. My dad, my dad taught in a in a, in a college, so he taught um, graduate level pianists, and mm. so he didn't. He wasn't he wasn't experienced as a, as a classroom music teacher. But that was what really interested me. And when I was at Holloway, I think it was I think it was in my second year. We did a module, or I chose to do a module in music education. And they had a composer in residence there who'd written several books about teaching composition in, to full classes long before we did classroom composition at UCSE. And I just remember thinking, classroom music teachers just about theory and putting kids through grade five theory and teaching them rhythm and crotchets and quavers, which is important, but I couldn't see myself doing that for 40 years. <laughs> but I thought if I can teach kids to, to play um, keyboards, uh, percussion, drum kits, guitars, get them to sing, get choirs going, get bands going, and then base my classroom teaching around kind of you know group composition, which was, which was this is in the mid nineteen eighties when that was really becoming a thing. Then I think I had a different experience to my dad in that respect, but but certainly you know his influence you know right the way until he died was ten years ago now when I was in my fifties, but I mean he was still very much uh, we talked about music all the time and it was a big influence on, on in my life and it has been in my own children's lives who, who've gone on not not to earn careers in music but they're really good musicians in bands and they they you know one's a drummer one's a guitarist they compose they you know so it's it's something that we we just do and and and, and it's been a lovely part of my of my life. That's wonderful. How nice that it's been sort of passed down as well. Mm. Yeah, I've always enjoyed music as well. And I had a similar influence, but for my granddad. They're seminal, aren't they? They're the things that you remember about your, your upbringing. And uh, it's a lovely thing to do. I'm not for one minute saying that other subjects don't have equal value. But actually, I, I do despair sometimes when the arts seem to have taken a downward spiral in schools because it's so important. There are children actually who come to school because of the arts. And if you deny them that opportunity, then school becomes quite a dry place for them, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a very important discussion taking place at the moment, isn't it? How we protect the time for those kind of activities because Absolutely. it's a really important part of learning. You mentioned your time at Royal Holloway there. Mm. What was it like to move from uh, from your time in Wales to the English capital? So I'm, I'm not going to underplay it. It was probably the life changing experience for me. You, you know, I was like many people of my generation. Uh, I was the first of the children in the family to go to university. My my, uh, my younger sister went after me, but I was the first. My dad had come from a background where his, his his father ran a family butcher's business in Cardiff Market, and, and I think there was an expectation that my dad would go into that, but he didn't want to, so he, he went down the musical route, but he hadn't done that in any formal way. And, and I suppose I ticked through you know, secondary school thinking, well, I'll, if I can get a grade C and a grade E, I can go to Cardiff University and I'll do my music degree there. And hadn't even really thought about going away. You know, it just wasn't on my radar really of thinking about why would I do that? Why, why would I leave home at 18 and go and live in London? And and then I just remember going for the interview and thinking, oh my word, this is this is really different. And then I think the year off helped because it helped me to really prepare for it. Because I, I think if I hadn't had that time really you know, upping my game a bit, as I said earlier, and developing my, my musical skills, I, I would have found that a very hard transition, I think. 
but as it was, I, I thrived there and it was just an amazing place. And it was, I mean, Holloway is, is amazing. So my stepson went there, my niece is there now. And so, you know, as a family, we've, we've kept that Holloway tradition going. And, and it's, I, I guess what's wonderful about it, it's, it's not, it's, although it, you can see central London from where it's based out, out in Egham in Surrey, you're kind of out, out of London as well. So I could be in London in half an hour. But at the same time, I wasn't having to cope with the challenge of moving from Cardiff to living in the centre of the city. But I, I loved it. And I, although I've never gone back to work in Wales since I, I've, I've always worked in England, you know, London has been a, a real draw for me. And although I've spent a lot of my working career in the southwest, we've been back in in Surrey now in this area for about six or seven years. And, you know, I, I've been to a board meeting in London today and it's, you know, it's, it's a joy to be able to do that, you know, 45 minutes on a train as opposed to two hours and 45 minutes from Bristol, if you're lucky. So, so yes, no, it, it, it was a very important and really key moment in my life, I think, and gave me the confidence to believe I could do things. I'm interested in what you say about having that time to prepare. We, we did some work recently on, on mental health of uh, university students. And one of the things that international students often have is time before they travel abroad or something like that to, to attend university mm. and, and the preparation that they do compared to young people who go sort of straight from school here often means that they are more resilient when they're there because they've had that time to adjust. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's really interesting that you say that. I think that is quite an important process. I had, I had no perspective to draw upon. You know, I, I, there was nobody else that I knew mm. really who'd done it. I mean, there were people in school who were older than me who I knew had done it, but I never really talked to them about it. And, you know, I think when I, I'm not sure, I think this is probably true. When I went for the interview and we would I had to stay overnight for my interview, I think that was the first time I'd been away from home on my own. Mm. I don't think I'd, I, I mean, maybe that's probably not true. Actually, some of the orchestral courses probably were, but that was slightly different. But to but to go somewhere completely new, completely alien, to do something as significant as an interview, it was very, very different. So, and I think it, I think it helped me prepare for that. And I, I think a, a lot of, I mean, again, it's, it's not quite the same. It's changed a little bit now, but you know, when I was, when I was working as a head, you know, 10, 15 years ago, more and more children just made that choice, uh, either because they wanted to work for a year to save some money, or they just needed a little another year of maturity to, to cope with it. And because um, it's a big deal, isn't it? And and actually, you you you're in a school for however many years you're there, fourteen years, and you've got all this support wrapped around you. So when things are going wrong, or you've got a problem, or you're a bit upset, there's, there's someone to help you. And suddenly you rock up, and you're in this concrete block called the Hall of Residence, and you've had a really awful day, and you're and you and, you, and you're missing home, and you wish you could be anywhere else, and there's no one to talk to. So mm. you have to, you have to develop that resilience to cope with that. And I think I think it's one of the challenges that quite a lot of young people have faced post pandemic that having been very much you know, rooted in their family whilst we were in lockdown and things, they found that even harder, I think, um, in terms of making that transition. And so, you know, your story of international students, I think, is a really, really valid one. Mm, it's a really big change. And as you say, the, the pandemic has, has made that harder in a lot of cases. Moving on to your time in the classroom yourself, yeah. thinking back to your teaching days, do you have any memories from sort of the first times that you were going into the classroom with, with classes of children and what it was like to, to enter into the world of teaching? Yeah, I do. I mean, again, it's such a long time ago because, you know, it's, gosh, it's, it's more than 40 years because I've been teaching for 40 years. So, there was, so I did some, obviously, teacher training before that. I, I just remember it being a place where I felt very comfortable. Really, you know, I just felt it was it was my it was my place. It was where I wanted to be. I I remember doing a two week school placement in a school in a primary school in Cardiff after my degree before my teacher training year started, and just really really enjoying it. And, and, and it was a primary school, so what did I know about primary? Absolutely nothing. Um, but I really enjoyed working with kids and with the young people. So that even though that's such a long time ago, I, I just remember it very vividly. And my, I did my, my PGC uh, at the Institute of Education in London, which I just think is a, an amazing place. It still is an amazing place today, you know, in, all, in, in everything it does. But at the time, it was really interesting. And we had two, um, sorry, had three placements. One was at um, Hornsey School for Girls in Crouch End, which was really, really challenging. <laughs> you know, quite, a, quite, a, quite a naive 21-year-old faced by girls that were far more mature than I was at 21. That was really quite an experience. <laughs> But I really enjoyed it. It was it was good. Then I had a second one at, at Edmonton County High in Enfield, um, which was more challenging, I think, in terms of some of the behaviours I saw, but gave me the confidence to cope with that. And then bizarrely, my third placement was the City of London Boys School, oh. which is you know the top independent school in Blackfriars. But again, really interesting because 
teaching O level as it was then and A level as part of my timetable. You're talking, you're, you're talking about children who, in the main, were the sons and daughters of professional musicians who were going to be professional musicians. Wow, yeah. And so, you know, what this wasn't about, you know, tr- trying to raise a bar. Their, 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 their bar was already right up there. It was almost like, can, can I keep up with these kids? <laughs> that was all really interesting. And then, and I think, you know, I, I, I taught music because I love the idea of being able to do practical music. I really like that. So the idea of being able to teach composition, whether it was through conventional instruments or through classroom instruments or through rock instruments, really, really motivated me to to think about how we do that. And and all of the jobs I had, really, up until I became a deputy, and even then I was still teaching music as a deputy. I still taught music as a head, actually, in my first headship. But I, it was all about... Um, you know, that kind of live music making and giving kids that opportunity to play in an ensemble and play in assemblies and record their, their work on cassettes <laughs> and send off the exam boards for their GCSE assessments. And and it was, I mean, so my approach was very much, it was about practical music making. It was about a lot of group work. The strength was that a lot of kids got into music that way, really, really enjoyed doing music. I suppose the downside of it was I the way that the GCSE curriculum has changed, some of those children who did GCSE with me in the 80s and 90s couldn't cope now because the expectation is that they have a level of musical skill, often around being able to recite read music, that they didn't have. And so, you know, it would be very tough to get a top grade in a, in a GCSE assessment now with a, with a Zolifer, for, for sake of mm, argument, mm. which is what we were using, obviously, in, in some, with some kids. And a lot of those children couldn't have afforded a violin or a clarinet or a trumpet. So so in a sense, it's not quite as inclusive, I think, as it was it once was. But I absolutely loved it, adored it. And we, you know, we did great extracurricular music making, took kids on orchestra tours abroad and did West Side Story. Um, oh, wow. Shopper, you know, we did all these shows and it was just great. Absolutely loved it. And uh, and I think that being able to corral large numbers of children into concert arenas and things like that, which we did, was really good experience for becoming a head when you've got to talk on fire drill. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> that experience of bringing everyone together, uh, that's uh, that's tough. But I didn't have a megaphone when I was doing the music lessons. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably you know how to project, though. If you... <laughs> I, had yeah, I had to learn. Yeah, wonderful. I remember when I was learning music at school, we were taken to the Barbican for an afternoon wow. and played... Yeah. We were quite little, but we played sort of as a group in the Barbican on the stage. And that was one of the most exciting things I'd ever done. I brought some fantastic projects at the Barbican um, when I was teaching in, in London, run by the London Symphonietta, when they, they would do, they would send musicians into the schools to do a project. And then you take your projects, the Barbican, and play alongside all the other schools that have been involved in the project. Wonderful. But you'd be sitting on the stage, yeah. you know, cross-legged on the floor, maybe with your, I don't know, your, your drum in front of you or whatever you're playing with. We, we did some salsa stuff, I remember. But what an experience for, for a child to play in a concert arena like that. Just just amazing. Yeah, if you want to raise aspirations, you know, that's a, a wonderful way to do it, isn't it? It was like, it was like saying to you, you and I football team, we're going to play at Wembley tomorrow. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so exciting. Fantastic. You, um, you've touched on there that you, you moved into headship. Mm. What was that journey like for you? And what do you think was maybe the most important lesson that you learned from being a head teacher? Mm, yeah, I think that's a really, really good question. So it, it wasn't, as I said earlier in the conversation, it really wasn't something I'd set my heart on from a, you know, from the beginning of my career. I really didn't think about it. I, I had a period of time in between 1990 and 1994 when I was, I was a music advisor for Dorset Local Authority, mm. and and I think I because a lot of that 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 role brought me into contact with heads, particularly in primary, because the increase in advisors in the early 90s was the direct result of the government national curriculum and, and, and many subjects being taught by non-specialists, music being one of them. So my job for that period of time was to, to you know, to really upskill classroom teachers in primary schools to be able to teach music. But also, also I was working with secondary as well. So I met a lot of heads and I, really, and I began to think about, OK, so what's what's next in terms of where I might go? Um, and one of the things I'd wanted, I'd been a head of creative arts at a, at a large comp in, in Reading. And then I'd gone to the advisory job from there. And I kind of wanted to go back and do the job again because I'd had the experience of the advisory and I'd seen so much really interesting practice. I wanted to go back and do that job again, which I did. So I went back. I then left the advisory service, went back into school in, in, in Christchurch in Dorset. I said a creative arts. I just did exactly the same job. I, t- I just took a sideways move. But I've never regretted it because I knew so much more about about how to teach the arts as a result of my advisory experience so so that was kind of the that was that was the moment I, I guess I started to think about it and whether I could do it and then it was that head in Christchurch a guy called Brian Driver 
who I, you know, I, I just think was an amazing guy. I mean, he was just a lovely bloke, full stop. You know, he he was just a really, just a great leader. But he also showed how you could be ahead and still be very approachable, very outward facing. Spend a lot of time on corridors, in the in the playground at break times, in the dining queue at lunch times. And I and I just remember thinking, um, he then promoted me to to be a senior teacher in his team. And I just remember thinking, okay, well, if I can if I can do it like that, I think I could do this. And then the journey, I'll do this a bit briefly, but the journey was really interesting because it was Easter 1997 when I applied for a deputy headship in Gloucestershire. And I got it and I, and I took up the role at Easter. So I, so when we broke up for the Easter holidays, I was still a head of creative arts. And then in that summer term, the current head announced he was leaving, was going to Brunei. One of the deputies was about to go on maternity leave. And so there was a kind of sense of, and guess what? You're going to be the acting head in September of the secondary school. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it really is one of those sink or swim moments. And, and you know, there were some daunting moments where I thought, oh, I just, you know, I'm going to fail really badly here. But actually, you just you just do what you do. And and, and I, I was very open about what I knew and what I did. I mean, I'd been a deputy head for terms, so I hadn't even had that experience. But I... Mm. You know, I just I just spent the whole time walking around the school, going into lessons, talking to kids. I knew where my naughty boys were. I knew where they were at break time, so I'd make sure I was there before they got there. I I, I knew which teachers needed, uh, you know, an arm around them. I knew which teachers needed a bit of challenge, and, and I just basically led like that. And I really, really enjoyed it. And the staff responded really well to it. So when the when the headship came up as a permanent role in the Christmas period just after September I, I got the job Amazing. and so you know again I, I think by the time I'd gone to be a deputy I, I couldn't see the point of being a deputy and not wanting to be a head but I wasn't sure but there was no choice there was nobody else it was, it was me or find someone from outside the school and I'm thinking if, the, if, I, if somebody comes in here and they're really really good I'm going to regret that mm. I'm going to regret, I didn't give it a go and, and, and I've never had regretted it and it, and it was for me it was a launch pad of everything I've done ever since. It's amazing moments like that, isn't it? When things just align and, and suddenly it's happening. Yeah. And wonderful to hear that sort of person-centred approach. I think that's so important. Yeah, I think that was important. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the school was lovely. It was great. So I was so happy to be there. I was delighted to get the job as a deputy. And even though I'd only been there a term, I kind of had fallen in love with it, really. I liked the people. I liked the kids. I saw some examples of rural poverty, which I hadn't seen in the urban environments. Mm. You know, this, it, was a, it wasn't a rural school. It was a, a Cotswold Market town school. But actually, when you walk around the town, a bit like you, know, you, you walk around your Cheltenhams and your places like this, you think there's a lot of affluence. Of course, there is in some parts of it, but actually you don't have to go very far before you see the very opposite. And all the schools I'd ever worked in really had, had had the what we now call high levels of deprivation. We didn't really call it that in those days. We didn't name it, but that was what it was. So it was great to be in that place. And then I stayed there for six years. And we had a we had a, we just had a great journey, you know. We we, we the, the outcomes of the kids went from I think around about forty five percent the summer before I went to when I left up in the eighties, which at the time was 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 pretty impressive for a comp, you know. And I was very proud of that, and so took a lot of the learning from that into my other jobs. Wonderful, yeah. How exciting! And you uh, you went on after your time as a head to become the founding CEO of the Cabot Learning Federation. Yeah. Again, another huge step. How did you find that transition? And what kind of challenges were you facing in, in leading a new trust? Yeah, so it was, again, looking back, it was just such a privilege to do that and to, and to have all that learning going on in, in real time. So so I went, when I left Deer Park in Sirencester, which was my first school, I went to John Cabot CTC, as it was at the time, uh, as head. And there was a, there was a job to be done there. Um, you know, it, it, it was a standout school in Bristol, but but beyond that, I, I would have said it probably wasn't a standout school. It certainly wasn't as good as its publicity said it was. And I felt we had a bit of job to do there. So I spent two to three years, yes, yeah, probably three and a bit years actually, really getting it where I wanted it to. And then it, it got a really, it got an outstanding judgment in 2007, I think. And off the back of that, we were invited to form a multi academy trust uh, around it. But before that, um, Bristol had asked us to form a hard federation with, with, with another school. And I regret saying yes to that because that was really tough mm. because we were outstanding school. We were working with a school that was in real difficulties because it closed to become an academy. It kind of lost its special measures judgment, but it was it was special measures with knobs on and it was a really tough job. And the hard federation for me was a, was, was okay in the sense that I had a leadership responsibility for both schools. 
but the authority was missing. So, so you know, in the things I need, I knew we needed to do quickly in order to get things to turn around fast. You know, there was it was almost we had to do it by consensus because the because the schools maintained their own governing boards, and there was a steering group that oversaw my role at effect in effect. And so, I whilst I was excited at the time, I found that quite a challenging experience. And for me, it's one of, one of the reasons why why, why the multi academy trust model can be in the in the under the right leadership really effective mm. it does give you the authority to make the right changes if you need to do that which the hard federation i guess didn't but it but it was it was for me it was driven by the fact that standards in in secondary education in bristol around 2003 four, five, when i went into the city were just so low um and and i could i, I was i was shocked by it to be honest because you're talking about a city with two fantastic universities and you were thriving multicultural community but secondary standards were really, really low, and um, and I think the summer I, the summer I moved, um, Deer Park was up in the eighties, as I said for five eighty C's, and Cabot was in the high forties, I think forty eight, forty nine, but it was still ten, fifteen points above the next school in Bristol. Mm. So I was, you know, there, there was this kind of tension of yes, the school's doing okay, but we could be doing so much better. Yes, and so so for me putting the school at the heart of a kind of a, re, a relaunch of what we tried to do with East Bristol schools and move from the Hard Federation into the the, uh, the mat with the, with the Cabot Learning Federation was, was great. And, I, and, and you asked me about my, my own challenges. And my own challenges, I guess, were which the one which many people face and probably still face, which is the one moving from making all of the decisions in my school to having to lead and model good decision making, but recognise that the heads need to make the decisions that are right for their schools, and 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 occasionally getting it wrong and stepping too much into that space and not walking back from it. It did take me probably a, a good couple of academic years to really get my head around what being an executive head or CEO was was meant to be, and it informed a lot of the training I did subsequently when I was working for Ambition uh, Institute and also how I was thinking about CEO challenging CEOs when I was in the DFE having gone through that experience and I think for me that was one of the real benefits of that role for me is I, I'd been I'd done their job I'd, I'd been on that journey so I knew the challenges and so whilst I wasn't I wasn't forgiving of things not going well or, or if schools were failing I was able to say but I, I do get that's difficult and and you need to work out how you're going to work to make that work so it was a really interesting role and and, and you know I, I i think i count myself as being incredibly lucky that you know i i i developed my career in a time where the ultimate job in the sector was to be a head teacher but over the course of the last 25 years you think about all the other roles so i mean i think apart from running off i've done all of them <laughs> yes <laughs> i've been in nle we've run a teaching school um i've been a ceo I've been a commissioner at local and national level. And so, you know, if you'd said to me in 1997, when I took on that <laughs> acting headship, that this is what the next 25 years are going to be like, you'd, you know, it would have blown your mind. Yeah, completely. It's an incredible journey. And it's so tough to kind of take on that, that responsibility, isn't it? And be able to kind of trust that you can give guidance and let people then take it forward themselves I think that's such a yeah. such a tough thing about being at that level you have to find the equilibrium around that I think you have to find what works for not just for you but the people you're working with and mm. um and, and the worst thing that you can do is to leave it opaque so that people are really confused by it yeah and, and so for me it was very much about my job is to make this trust work and be the best trust in the southwest yours is to make your school as strong as it can be in this mm. trust and then when we kind of really thought about our roles I, I actually this is going to sound a really naff example but I just remember having to sit down one day and just just write a document one side of a4 with three columns this is what heads do this is what i do this is what we both do mm. and and although it was really simplistic and born out of a lot of frustration because i couldn't get it right it actually made the difference because people go okay well i can i can work with that yes yeah it's really clear brilliant and i mean as a reflection of your incredible journey through the education system in 2013 you you received a knighthood for your services to education in the queen's birthday honors incredible achievement what was it like to receive that and did you have any sense that it might be coming or was it a total surprise no i had absolutely no idea so a letter came on a saturday morning and it had the you know the sort of portcullis emblem yes yeah and i thought i i thought maybe they've they think I haven't paid my tax or something like that. <laughs> You're in trouble. I was really panicking, thinking, oh, my God, what is this? 
And and I just remember opening it and, and there's all the bump in here about where you've got to be and what you've got to wear and all this stuff. And I didn't look at that and I just saw the letter. And and it's one of those moments where you're really thinking, I just remember giving it to Claire, my wife, and saying, is that what it, is, is this right? Is that what it says? <laughs> and and then of course, you know, we were we were really excited about it. Yeah. And um and of course you've got to be absolutely quiet. You can't tell anybody about it. But the thing was about th- about four or five weeks before I got that letter, my dad died. Oh. And uh, and so it was really poignant for me that um you know that he oh, he wasn't around. So I, I did I did tell my mum and I told my family mm. and um, Claire's mum and dad as well and I told I told my kids. And then of course you've got to go back to school on Monday, knowing all this knowing this thing in your head that you've been drinking champagne all weekend. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've got to really play it down and um, but yeah, it was it was great, and and I suppose there were there were a couple of things about it. One one there were t- there were two reasons that I, that I was really proud to get it. One was, I I think it isn't it great that people who do good things in the public sector get the opportunity to be recognised in that way, and and so there was definitely an element of me wanting to accept the award on behalf of all the people that helped me and all the schools I'd worked in, but there was a bit of me that also wanted to accept it because. I just remember myself as the as the kid in in Cardiff, you know, whose whose dad came from a family of butchers and was a, was a jazz musician, and you know, I didn't go to private school, I didn't I didn't have some of those advantages. I was a it was a very humble background, and I thought, well, you know, for all of the people like myself, we should celebrate this. And so yeah, it was it was amazing. And then on the day in the it was October half term, I, I went to Buckingham Palace, and and you don't know which of the royal family you're going to get. Oh really. Um, yeah, no, you're not told. Um, but I had a clue because when we drove past in the taxi the night before going to our hotel to stay, the um, the Union Jack was up, uh-huh. which, which is it means the Queen's in residence. And so, and it was it was the Queen who did it, which was just amazing. And she was, she was, um, yeah, um, she was just fantastic, very, just lovely, just 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 really interested. I mean, she asked me questions about about what I've done, about my career, which I just cannot believe she did with all ninety of us. Because mm. I, I was about eighth or ninth in the queue, I suppose, and there was and, and everybody went up, and, and there was eighty or ninety people got an award that day. But she seemed to have a personal conversation with every single one of them, and I was just so impressed by by the warmth of that. And yeah, it was just it was just incredible. Oh, that's lovely. I always imagined that you just shook hands and that was it. So that's really that's really special. There's a real protocol about how many steps forward, how many steps left. Which which need you put down to to have a tap on the shoulder? Oh, of course. It's ma'am, as in ham. You know, it's, <laughs> it's all of. This. So I was I was terrified. I was going to I was going to turn right instead of left, or I was going to do too many steps or something like that. So <laughs> when I got to the point where I was kneeling down, I relaxed, and then we had a conversation when I stood up. But um, yeah, no, it was it it was it was lovely. It was just very very special, and I've got a I've got a CD ROM of it. Um, Brilliant. Uh, which, yeah, and I've got a, a beautiful medal which is kept kept safe <laughs> lovely lovely for your kids we'll treasure that i'm sure oh that's wonderful well congratulations again thank you that's 10, ten years ago this summer yeah god time flies <laughs> scary isn't it <laughs> i'm going to move on to talk a little bit about your time as a regional and national schools commissioner now yeah. this is probably how i know you best from when i was a schools week journalist and um that was 2014 when you were the regional schools commissioner and then into the national schools commissioner role in 2016 um where you were leading the eight regional offices that oversaw Mm. academies in england what was it like to take that step into the civil service and what kind of guiding principles did you take from your experiences into into that role so I'll, i'll take the second part of that question first exactly the same as i took into every job people first this is about school improvement. This is about modelling the leadership. This is about making decisions and carrying them out. I'm not asking other people to do things I wouldn't be prepared to do myself. So I, I tried to to model that kind of trust leadership I'd had in Bristol when I went when I went into the RSC job and then into the NSC job. So I I think it was a really brave decision at the DFE to appoint a group of people who'd had no experience of being in the civil service but into senior civil service positions mm. uh, as, as, as uh, deputy directors and directors. And it wasn't easy, you know, is, is the answer. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I got a lot from it. I, I, I found it you know, a great place to work. I think culturally there were challenges and probably not always a perfect fit with me and some of the others that come from the school sector, but, but, I, but I really enjoyed the opportunity to work with ministers, to work with secretaries of state, um, I worked uh, very close with Nicky Morgan, um, with Justin Greening, particularly over the Grenville fire, the, the, the days and weeks following that. Mm. 
uh, worked very closely with John Nash when he was minister, and then uh, Theodore Agnew when he came in. So you know I, that was, you know, that's great to be working at that level and to try to get your your thoughts about how how the sector might work over, and also I guess to challenge some of the policy thinking about how I think some of that will land in classrooms, mm. because I think that's still even more so arguably I think at the moment is that there's a lot of thinking happening in the DFE that is not being tested out enough with people who are working in schools and and it's not it's not just about giving school leaders and school and, and teachers in schools a voice it's not it's not tokenistic it's actually if you want this policy to work you need to find out what's going to stop it yeah and these are the people who will tell you what the difficulties will, will be with this so I'm sure there are occasions where some people found me frustrating because I, I wouldn't be slow in coming forward if I thought something wasn't working or, or not likely to work in, in that respect. But I, I was committed from day one to this being about school improvement, not just growing academies. You know, So clearly the remit was get more schools become academies. But for me, it was about academies going into the right trust for them. Mm. So that, you know whether that was, a, that was about a primary going into a trust where the primary schools fed into the secondary schools, so it was a real community feel to it. That was that was one thing I felt very strongly about. Um, when certainly when I was the RSC, when when trusts wanted to form and they would they'd prepare their paperwork, you know, if if they didn't have a school improvement strategy, what they were going to do, then I'd send it back and we and we and tell them to have another go at it because I expect your governance to be good. I expect you to have a CEO. I expect you to have a financial model, but I really expect you to tell me how you're going to improve the schools mm. because if we're going to safeguard a school to you that has already been in trouble and kids have had a bad experience you have to move quick and, and make it better so so I think I brought some of that to it as well and then after about yeah I was I'd done the job for about a year I think and then the the National Commission job came up and yeah I, I went for it and was lucky enough to get it and um and it was it was that was part of the reason why we moved to the southeast because the commute from the, the southwest was was just a killer um, and I certainly don't regret that because I love living where we where we live now and close to London. So it was it was a, it was a change for us as a as a family as well in in that respect. But I think the I think the point about I never took the view that anybody went into school leadership wanting to do a bad job. Mm. Sometimes stuff happens and sometimes things go wrong. And what you've got to assess, I think, quite quickly is is it the right plan and the wrong people. Or is it the right people, but the plan needs needs sorting out? Um, and sometimes it's both, of course. In which case, it's quite an easy decision. But but it's you know I don't believe anybody goes into into education to to fail kids. Um, yet sometimes that happens, and 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 you know I took that responsibility very seriously. That there were children who would never know me, and I would never meet them. But we needed to make decisions that made their lives better. And and I think having a team around me who at that time the majority of whom had had very recent school leadership experience. Which is not the case now, and which, which I think is a shame because I because I, I think I think it just brings a different lens to that. I'm not you know I'm not even saying that all of the regional directors have to have it, but you know in, when we started in 2014, all bar one had come from the school sector, and and I thought that was a really helpful uh, knowledge input into what was already a strong policy unit in the in, in, in the department. But yeah, the, but you can't escape the politics. The politics is what it is. You know, the, you're there as a civil servant to serve the minister of the day and. You know, very occasionally, ministers would say things that are quite frankly utter garbage. But you've got to find a way to to respectfully say, well, that's option A, minister, but maybe let's think about option B mm, mm. And, uh, and see where that takes us. So it was it was a fascinating experience, and uh, from twenty fourteen to twenty eighteen, I really really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a really important bridging role, isn't it, in terms of translating what is coming from government into what is is practically achievable. Yeah, and, and, and I, I enjoyed that part of it. I think for Nikki Morgan and Justine, they were both very happy for me to do that work. So I did a lot of presenting, I did a lot of roadshows, I you know, I met a lot of trusts and and we talked about what being a good trust was was about. And I think there was a there was over time there was a sense that we we shouldn't be telling them what to do. That's Ofsted's job or their own job. And I, I get that up to a point. But on, on the basis that some people are making it up as they go along, someone's got to tell them what to do or, mm-hmm. or, or, or post them to some things that are really strong because that's that's not necessarily how the inspection system works. So I, I, I felt that when I got to the end of my contract, the best thing I could do would probably be to work 
more closely with trusts in a less accountability driven way and in more a way where I, I, could, I could support them and, and work for myself, but work with them on their strategy, on their school improvement plans, help them with their CEO recruitment and things like that. And, you know, the last, uh, what it be five years this summer have just been great. I've really enjoyed doing that slightly more flexible role, but hoping they're making a contribution to help trust improve. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think that's a really valuable and important position to be in, isn't it? When you're, you, you don't have to, I think the national and regional commissioner roles and the, the authority of those positions, I suppose, in some ways makes it harder to have those kind of conversations. Whereas if you're kind of a step back from that, then you can really be in that sort of critical friend position, I suppose. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a really fair analysis. That That's exactly how it is. And I think the you know, I think the, the old dispute that I had with um, with Michael Wilshaw and Amanda Spielman about you know, my tanks on their lawn, as they put it, <laughs> um, was probably probably fair. I mean, not not because I was doing it deliberately, but 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 certainly, you know, I I, I couldn't. I, the, the the policy bit I found difficult was you can't intervene with an academy until it's got a special measures judgment, mm. and I kept thinking. But we could do something to stop that. Is that too late? Um, yeah. And, and these are children. You know, they they got one go at this. They're in year eleven, and you're telling me to wait till they've got a special measures judgment before we can do anything. And what we can do is move them to another trust. So that's not going to affect a single classroom, not for ages. So there was a bit of me said, well, I, you know, I get, I get this is sensitive, but we're going to do it because it's really important. And if, and and either we need to accelerate this change before the inspection happens, or we need to find out whether you know the trust needs to put its finger out and, and help you which is often you know, part of the problem. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think that sort of preventative work is vital, isn't it? And I think one of the things I wanted to ask you about was you, you've spoken about the importance of being able to celebrate the strengths of weaker schools, yeah. not just having that completely critical eye and, and you know, that, that potential, particularly when it comes to building networks or partnerships and building that capacity for them to be able to improve. In your view, I mean, do you think that struggling schools at the moment are being properly supported in the education landscape? And whose kind of responsibility is it to be providing that support? So I th- if you'd asked me that question five years ago, I think I'd have probably given you a more nuanced answer. I, I do think it's better because the schools that, that we know are failing or are really struggling are in the main in, in good trusts. Um, and I think you know, your opening question about the, the Academy Trust Standards, for example, will identify those trusts who are not performing well enough, and therefore the answer to your question: No, they're not being helped in that way. So, so the whole the whole idea was that when when schools get into difficulties, they join a, they join a good multi academy trust, and the support is is there. And 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 when that works, it works brilliantly. You know, at its best, it's the best version I've seen of that. But I but I think there are different ways and different gradations, if you like, of what of what failure means. And and so it, it can't just be about a, a, an inspection judgment it's not just about an ri or a measures judgment you know there, there can be there can be a, a school that on the surface is doing really really well but for a particular group of children it isn't and and that's where i think it's very difficult whether you're an, an nle or your teaching school alliance as we used to have to be able to get to the nitty-gritty of what is it that's really causing this problem whereas if you're if you're leading on teaching and learning in your trust then actually there's no reason why you couldn't spend five days a week in that school if you think that's the best way to, to do that work. So I, I, I think we are in a better position to do that. But I still think there are there are lots of trusts that are probably very high on the collaborative end of networking and CBD, which is really important, and less effective at the hard-edged bit about how, we, how we're going to move this at pace. Mm, mm. Uh, and, and so I think there is still work to be done on that, but it's a lot better than it was 10 years ago. So when the RSE started... You know, it, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that in some parts of the country it was a bit of a Wild West show. Mm. Whereas I think 10 years on, we, we know much more. We, we've thought a lot about it. We've, we've got a, a lot clearer about governance and how that works. We've encouraged trust to really think about their school improvement focus. And so I, I'm, I'm more confident now than I was before that, that we have we have that, that solution, that strategy in, in place. But it's still, I mean, Mickey Morgan's phrase was, you know, every every single day that a child spends in a failing school is a day too many. And she was right. You know? yeah. And we still have kids that are in that position. And so for me, it's, it's about it's about pace and momentum and then sustainability, that it's not just about quick fixes that get us OK for this summer's results. We, we want what we're doing here to have an impact in 2028. 
and, 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 and longer thinking. Yes. Yeah. The sustainability point is so interesting. I, in my previous work, spent quite a lot of time looking at different trusts, different models, different growth patterns, things like that, and seeing what has lasted and what has worked and who's been mm. leading there and those kind of things. And it's fascinating to see you know, the examples where they've really put in that groundwork to make sure that it's going to be long term and that it's going to be change that, that, that will last and make the real difference. I wanted to ask you as well about um, something that we've been looking at quite a lot recently at, at the Centre for Education and Youth, and that's area based education partnerships which we've been doing quite a lot of research into. Basically, we've been looking at partnerships that are school-led local organisations that include all types of different schools, have the central purpose of raising standards, but aren't necessarily multi-academy trust. They can be different kinds of, of, of groups and connections there. I wonder whether you have experience in particular of other kinds of, of forms of I think you do from your past of different kinds of um, connections between schools like this and whether you feel like there's a, a role for them in the landscape going forward. I absolutely think there's a role and more than ever it's a vital one that we need to we need to really encourage and we need to probably rocket boost a bit I think because we're, we're, we're now in a climate where politically we're not moving at any time in the near future to a fully academized system so so people are still look, becoming academies they're joining good trust they're making that choice and, and, and that's great and, and there will be a, a gradual increase way beyond critical mass probably of of schools that are in most academy trust and that's great i'm obviously you'd expect me to, to say that. i think that's great but i still worry that there are lots of schools who are not in formal partnerships who who need to benefit from those kind of collaborations and so there's there, there are two challenges one is how do how do we get multi-academy trusts to work better together to to, to help join the dots in their in their local uh, regional landscapes so that we don't we don't spend too much time you know, recreating the same strategies over and over again, but actually they work together better and share them. And I think that will, for me, that would be a hallmark of a strong trust, you know, which, which is a definition we're, we're, we're seeking to find the answer to. But I think also there are there are other schools outside of the MAT network in the academy world who are doing a terrific job, standalone academies or maintained schools who are doing really well and performing at a really consistently high level. And, and there is a role for them to play in not just in partnerships, but in school-to-school support as well. And I think what I'm seeing in some of the work that I do these days is lots of examples where strong maintained schools with no intention of joining a multi-academy trust, but will help a multi-academy trust in its neighbourhood out mm. and provide some capacity. And and what we also saw in reverse, particularly during COVID, when a lot of the challenges around you know risk assessments and health and safety and delivering food parcels and all those things that schools did, that schools that, again, are never going to join a trust, but work really closely in their community with the trust to make it better for, for people. So I, I do think there's been a there's been a legacy from the pandemic in that respect, which is probably helping to break down some of those barriers. But I, you know, I think if, if if we were thinking in terms of the policy space, there is a need, I think, to go even further with that and look at how area-based partnerships almost become the accountability mechanism for educational standards and the champion of vulnerable children in those communities. Mm. And, and I know that people listening to this will say, but that's what local authorities should do. And of course they should. But in some cases they don't, either because of scale or capacity or, or, or because those services are being commissioned out. So I, I, I think the idea of trying to create more regional structures, I mean, you know, I remember in the southwest, which was, you know, was a region of one of the eight, you know, from Swindon, which was at the top end of our region, down to Penzance, on a train was the same time as a flight to New York. <laughs> Tell, tell me how on earth that's a region mm. and how do I make sense of that? So, you know, the Southwest probably works if you break it down into something like 15 or 16 regions. Yeah. And then you give some accountability and structure around those smaller units. And and you see it with some of the very large multi-academy trusts who create hubs. Yeah. You know, so, so you know, the, the, the AT that I know particularly well because I was a trustee there till recently will we'll, we'll have groups of schools in the Northwest that work very, very well together, have a have a relationship with the schools in the Southeast, but it's too far to do something on a day-to-day basis. So I, th- I think that notion of trying to find new ways of bringing people together, but not just for networking purposes, but to really accelerate school improvement and build capacity for that local network is really interesting. Mm, it's fascinating isn't it there's some really interesting examples that we've looked at and a lot of potential there so it'll be yeah we're moving into a second phase of that work so looking forward to seeing what comes out of it i've heard about it it's really exciting and i think it's really vital at the moment that we we share that as wide as possible thank you 
Well, I've taken up a lot of your time and thank you so much for discussing your experiences with me. Before we wrap up, there are two questions that we always ask our guests on The Life Pedagogic. And the first of these is thinking back on your education career, is there anything that you really changed your mind on? And if so, what changed it? Yeah, so I I think one of the things that I've really reflected on, probably in the last 10 years or so, more than at the beginning of my career, is that a really good curriculum, well-designed, well-resourced, well-conceptualised, really sits at the heart of school improvement. And I, and I don't think I thought enough about the role of curriculum design in improving schools. That I thought about, you know, pedagogy and assessment and data and middle leadership, which are really important things. But I didn't, I don't think until recently I'd seen quite how, how important and how effective a well-designed curriculum can be. And, and I think the, the other the bit that goes alongside that for me is that, is that a really strong curriculum is a blend of those kind of learning experiences that we might describe my early music teaching career about around group work and experiential learning. That is, in my head, there's absolutely a place for that, for that creativity. But I also think that having worked in you know, pretty much in all the schools and, and, and certainly since I left the Trust working at a national level, the injustice of of poverty and how young people who through no choice of their own have no agency in educational decision-making just need the adults to make good choices. And I think some of those choices are around, we should give children the opportunity to learn a knowledge-based curriculum in the same way as you might do if you went to an Eton or a Harrow, because it's not fair if we don't do that. I don't I don't buy into the idea it should be all about that, but I think it, we, we shouldn't dumb down our thinking and, and our aspiration, you know, for, for young people, if they're not going to understand some of the really important knowledge concepts that, that that make society and culture and our history what it is today, if they don't do that in school, they, they may not get it anywhere else. Mm. And, and so I, I think I've changed my view a little bit about what the what the curriculum looks like in terms of of, of the the breadth between balance and subject knowledge around around that in, in that respect. And I haven't articulated that terribly well, but it's it's around those those thoughts that I think. I've changed probably the most from being a music teacher who was all about creativity to a head teacher realizing that I had to think more broadly about that. No, that that's really clear. That's really interesting. And I think, yeah, I, I remember having some experiences as a teacher myself and thinking, you know, this this content or this material isn't right for this age group, for example, and then taking a risk on it yeah. and finding that actually they're really responsive they really take it on board they they get a lot out of it and feeling then kind of empowered by that and saying I'm willing to take more risks and it's how you bring it to the young people isn't it you know it's always worth kind of taking the opportunity to do that and and seeing seeing how it goes you can always adjust and adapt thank you and secondly our final question what two things would you most like to change about the English education system a huge question to end on (laughs) any thoughts yeah, so I, I thought you might ask me something like this. I mean, I, I've, I've thought of one, and I may come up with a second, but 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 one of the ones I think is really interesting is, it's to do, I suppose, with how do we measure the effectiveness of of education in schools, and and I think I've thought quite a lot about the true benefit of the education that children get up to the age of eighteen isn't often felt at that age. It's, it's when they get into their mid twenties that you begin to see whether the educational experience has really done what we hoped it would do in terms of their their employability, their, their contribution to society, um, how they are as young people, responsible citizens, whether they're rounded people in terms of the things and the interests that they have. And so I, I would have been interested in exploring the idea whether people's national insurance number could have been used to track what happens to them in the 10 years after they leave these schools. And I'm mm-hmm. encouraging multi-academy trusts to set up alumni models to do some of that, to try to make, make that most So that, that's probably a little bit off the wall, but I, but I think it's I think it's an interesting test that we, you know, I, I think we should take the view that education starts at 18, not ends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and therefore that might be, be a part of that. I think the other one, which I think is probably in my mind and probably not as coherently thought through though, is about the role that, that we have when, when we create metrics that measure the effectiveness of schools. And I, and I think we need to place more store on how schools do with their most vulnerable children mm. before we make a judgment upon how they do with everybody else. Because I, I, I still see 
and have worked and visited and seen schools with very very low numbers of of disadvantaged children you know in the, in the single figures percentage wise who are getting really good judgments and are doing very very well but not for that group of kids but because everybody mm-hmm. else is doing so well it masks it and i've seen other groups uh, of schools like my schools that I, that I led in bristol where you're talking 40 50 60 percent free school meal or eal or SEND, who are doing the most incredible job but not in terms of the traditional metrics and, and i think we need a more rounded approach to how we measure what a good school looks like and i i hope that in the course of the next so next year or so as we move closer to a general election and we begin to see what the both leading parties say we have a really good conversation about what do we think a good school looks like because it can't just be an Ofsted judgment it, it, for me that's the output of what a good school does i'm interested in what the input is that creates that and and i think that's a that's a timely conversation for the sector more than what's the purpose of education as opposed to how do we how do we measure what good good schools do and i and i think if we do that i think we'd we'd see some incredible practice being being raised that sometimes gets a bit submerged in the wider debate at the moment mm, that's fascinating and chimes so much with i think everything that we're trying to do at, at cfuy making sure that those young people's voices and experiences are recognized and are supported and those practitioners that are really making a huge difference for them Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, David. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to have you on the podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed discussing your life pedagogy. Yeah, very much so. And there was a really, I mean, the hour flew past and I really enjoyed, the questions were lovely and gave me a chance to reflect upon far more than just my educational time as well. So thank you for that. My complete pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Life Pedagogic. We love making this podcast. And if you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, then there are a few things you can do to help us. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who you think will find it interesting. And three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to get in touch with us using the links below in the show notes. See you back here for the next episode.